From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, abortion rights is a key issue in the 2024 election. John Nichols will comment. But first, it's getting late to take action about the climate emergency, but it's not too late. Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Latuna Tabwa will explain in a minute. It's getting late to take action about the climate emergency, but it's not too late. Not too late to help make the changes we need to make. That's what Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Latuna Tabwa say in their new project and their new book. It's called Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. Rebecca Solnit, of course, is the author of more than two dozen books, most recently the award-winning Orwell's Roses. We talked about it here. And she's also a columnist for The Guardian. Rebecca, welcome back. Lovely to be here, John. And Thelma is a digital storyteller and activist who's been social media manager for the global climate organization 350.org. She currently works at The Solutions Project. Thelma, welcome back. Thank you so much for having us. And Thelma, where are you? I'm currently in Pacific Harbor, Fiji. And why are you in Fiji? I live here for part of the year with my husband and our tiny little son. Great. For starters here, some of our friends feel despair over climate change. They feel hopeless because we haven't done enough to prevent disaster. What do you say to them? I mean, I think they're completely justified in feeling that way. We we have not done enough. The world leaders have failed to take enough action. What's happening in the world to communities right now is horrifying. Rebecca and I do want to honor people's despair and the emotions that they feel. Uh, we just don't want people to stop at despair. We can't give up. It's it's totally okay to grieve and mourn and feel angry but we have to keep on moving and uh, there's space to act. And so we just want to encourage people to, to feel those emotions, but then don't forget that there's so many possibilities and there is still a small window where we can act and, and limit the, the worst catastrophes. Rebecca, you've been writing about hope for a while now. Your 2004 book, Hope in the Dark, had a big effect on me and a lot of other people. Uh, because you say hope is not the same thing as optimism, please explain that. Optimism for me is a form of certainty, an assumption that you know what's going to happen and everything's going to be fine. And it's not really very different than pessimism, which is an assumption that everything's going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. And both of them essentially excuse you from acting. And we don't want to excuse people from acting. We really want to see full engagement. We really want people to recognize that there's a lot that we can do. And what does hope mean? Hope for me is really just that the future does not yet exist. It's something we are making in the present by what we do or fail to do. And the more we do, we meaning people who, you know, share the vision of a better world, a more just world, a livable world, a commitment to, you know, the people who will be born in a hundred years to the species, to the environment, you know, do their utmost. One of my favorite things in your book, Not Too Late, is your chapter titled, An Extremely Incomplete List of Climate Victories. 
My favorite entry is from 2002. Middle school teacher turned California legislator Fran Pavley proposes California vehicle emission standards. Seven years later, they become national standards. I wonder what some of your other favorites are. You're probably one of the few people I'll ever talk to who remembers who Fran Pavley is <laughs> and what an impact she had. Something that's very similar to it is one woman on the Berkeley City Council decided to introduce a resolution to prevent gas hookups in all new construction. It passed unanimously. And I always feel like at that point in the story, everybody would roll their eyes and be like, yeah, Berkeley, 50,000 people, whatever. Mm -hmm. Except that it became a template for whole states like Washington State, big cities like New York City, I think LA, 50 other California municipalities, and people all over the world to say, yeah, we need a world without what we call natural gas because we bought the industry's lies and we should all call methane a toxic, explosive, climate-harming substance that's piped into most of our houses. So just seeing the way things scale up. One of our favorite recent examples of power coming from the periphery to impact globally is from Vanuatu. There was a, a group of law students at the University of the South Pacific there who were trying to figure out what they could do. Vanuatu's uh, deeply impacted by the climate crisis. They don't hold a lot of power on the world stage, but they were trying to figure out what could we as law students do? And so they thought about what if we got the International Court of Justice involved? And so what they did, they ended up getting the government of Vanuatu involved, who then ended up getting over 120 nations also signed on to this, this plea to the International Court of Justice to do an advisory opinion. And it just passed unanimously in the UN just a couple of weeks ago. And so now it could have massive replications in legal courts around the world who are making decisions about climate justice and the law. It really just started off with a group of students, and then it just steamrolled, I guess I shouldn't say steamrolled, but then <laughs> blossomed into this uh, enormous uh, legal global victory. And we're super proud to say that one of the lead lawyers for that was Julian Aguan, who's also a poet and incredibly beautiful writer, and one of the contributors to Not Too Late, our book. Another one of my favorites is Harvard, Yale, and Princeton have all decided to divest in the last couple of years, but they all say they did not divest because of pressure from activists. They say they did it because their investment advisors told them fossil fuels were not a good investment anymore. It was a financial decision, they say, not a political one, not a response to activists and pressure. What do you say to that? I think there's two pieces to it. One of them is that they're never going to admit the students made them do it. So we can kind of discount that. But the other one is fossil fuels have become a really volatile, volatile, unreliable investment. And that's a lot of it is because of the climate movement. Yeah, they, they won't admit it. But I think what's been happening with the climate movement the past few years is hitting at the fossil fuel industry from multiple different pillars. So um, there's social license, the economic support that they get, the political support that they get. And so I think this is an example of, you know, a victory happening from, from activists coming from multiple levels to, to hit at the industry. 
Um, and, and this strategy is taken directly from anti-dictatorship work. So the way we toppled dictators in the past of hitting at their pillars of support, that same strategy is now being used by climate activists. And, and we're seeing wins um, all over the place because of this. One of the things that I really strongly believe, and I quote the theologian Walter Brueggemann in the book, is that memory breeds hope the way amnesia breeds despair. And a lot of people think nothing has happened. We haven't won anything. You know, nobody's doing anything because they don't see all this and they don't remember that we defeated the KXL pipeline. The divestment movement has divested more than $40 trillion globally. We are not doing nearly what we should be doing. But so much has been achieved by climate organizers and activists. We're not where we need to be, but we're in a place that's so much better than had they done nothing. So we've talked about some of our victories. I want to just talk, ask you for a minute about our defeats. I'm from Minnesota, and the biggest defeat that we saw in Minnesota recently was the, the long fight to stop this pipeline called Enbridge Line 3 that was going to bring crude oil from the tar sands of Alberta, one of the most hellish places on the planet, to a refinery and port on Lake Superior at Superior, Wisconsin, my mother's hometown. This fight was led by Winona LaDuke, Ojibwe activists from White Earth and Red Lake, joined with environmental groups. Bill McKibben came, Leonardo DiCaprio, Katy Perry, Joaquin Phoenix, Danny Glover, Jane Fonda, Amy Schumer, all lobbied President Biden. 70,000 individual comments were submitted to the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission. 94% were opposed to the pipeline. Hundreds of people showed up at the construction site for the final big day of protest. Many were charged with felonies for blockading the pipeline project. It was a really good movement for seven years, and we lost. The tar sands pipeline was finished and opened in 2021. What do you say about defeats like that? You don't win everything. And if you don't fight, you always lose. If you do fight, sometimes you lose, but sometimes you win. And we can look at other things like the KXL pipeline. And also with both divestment and pipelines, a lot of the consequences are indirect that really matter. And both movements have given people huge amounts of education about the fossil fuel industry and the way that it's present in ways they didn't previously know. Pipeline activism on KXL inspired people to cancel other pipelines. Even when schools didn't divest, I think people understanding that they hold fossil fuel stocks and the way that we've made that ethically questionable has really shifted things. And the fossil fuel industry had a very sterling reputation for most people 30 years ago, and we've changed that a lot. Uh, they're really seen as criminals pretty widely, which is not good enough. We need to, we need to win. We need to stop stuff. We need to build movements. Uh, we need to electrify everything so fossil fuel becomes the fossil. It should be the kind of outdated, irrelevant, bad investment it should be. Bill McKibben wrote recently that the climate tri crisis is about to get significantly worse. Savage heat waves and much bigger storms are coming in the next year or two. We need to be prepared politically, he says. Each of these surges in warming comes with new political possibilities as people see and feel more clearly our peril. So this, this round of heat waves is gonna come with new pressure for action from governments and corporations, and we need to be able to 
channel that pressure effectively, he concludes it's just the right moment for the book Not Too Late. What specifically are our key goals for the next couple of years? I would ask someone at the Solutions Project well, that I mean, question. <laughs> Good idea. I mean, I think, I think the key goal is we have to transition the world rapidly off of fossil fuels and build a 100% renewable energy economy that is just for all. And that is possible. And, and what we point to in the book and reiterate again and again is we have the solutions. We have the technology. We have the know-how. We know how to do this to completely upturn our economy. There's been so much research. The guideposts are there on how we do this. We also know how we should structure our economy in a way that centers care and justice and equity. Um, indigenous communities have been finding ways to live in balance with the earth for thousands of years. So the knowledge is there, the technology is there, the political solutions, the economic solutions and guideposts are there. What's missing is the political will. And so you're exactly right. Now is the time where we have to organize. And so a big part of the book as well is encouraging people to stop thinking as individuals. This is a time where you know we have to think beyond just what am I shopping for? What am I doing less of? But it's a time of more. We need more community organizing. We need more community care. We need more community power. And if we think of it from that lens, then we can build the change that we really need. I have a relative who likes to argue that climate change is not caused by human action. How can I convince him he's wrong? Should I give him a copy of your book? Well, we think we, you should give everybody you've ever met a copy of our book. <laughs> I think Americans have a real evangelical streak uh, sense that our job is to convert our enemies or the people who disagree with us. I think that's work that mostly fails. And the work we really need to do is to motivate and mobilize our friends, the people who already agree with us, who already believe climate change is real, the crisis is urgent. The great majority of people now, polls show, believe climate change is real, it's urgent, they want to see more done. They don't yet always fully understand that they are among the people who needs to make it all happen. So that's part of the spirit in which Thelma and I work is how do we get everybody engaged? And part of it is telling them it's not too late. We have the solutions. We know what to do. There's a great movement. We've achieved a lot already. Uh, we can set real goals. We know from the past that dramatic and sudden change is possible. You know, so... This book is a toolkit and in some ways uh, an on-ramp for the climate movement. Let me emphasize that it's not too late is not just a political statement. It's also one supported by science. And your book has several essays by leading climate scientists. I especially like the one by Joel Jurgis, lead author of the most recent UN report. Remind us what she as a scientist says about it's not too late. She actually has also published a book making a climate scientist case for hope. What all the scientists say is it's not that we will win everything or lose everything, which is the frameworks people love to cast it in. It's there are better scenarios and worse scenarios. The more we do to the better scenarios, the more we keep the temperature down, the more rapidly we leave the age of fossil fuels behind. All those things matter. And it's one of the things that I feel is really complicated is to get people who like binary narratives to recognize that we're dealing with shades of outcome. You know, there's a best case, there's a worst case. 
And there's a lot of places to land in between. And of course, climate scientists are very good at recognizing this. And this is part of what keeps them hopeful. Thelma, your concluding thoughts here. If anything, we hope this book inspires people to take action. And that's what makes it different from a lot of other books. It doesn't just sit in our emotions, even though we're fine. It's okay to sit in your emotions, but we want people to realize that there's spaciousness for action, that there's spaciousness to build a better world. And we want people to be excited to about the world we get to create. So much of climate change narratives are wrapped in destruction, and there is destruction, but there's also space in there to create a better world. You know, if we end the era of fossil fuels, what it, we can have bluer skies in cities, people can have cleaner air, we can have more abundant public spaces. So I, I want people to get excited, not just about what we're fighting against, but what we're fighting for as well. Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Latuna Tabwa. Their book is called Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. Rebecca and Thelma, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Abortion rights is a key issue in 2024. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, author of many books, most recently one co-written with Senator Bernie Sanders with the wonderful title, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Well, a decade ago, our friend and colleague Mark Cooper said, the best thing that could happen to the Democrats would be for the Republicans to succeed at outlawing abortion. And of course, the Supreme Court did abolish constitutional protection for abortion rights and made state politics the crucial battleground for a woman's right to choose. And then we saw a surprisingly strong showing by Democrats in the midterms, and more recently, as you and I have talked about, a landslide in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election, where the progressive candidate who campaigned on abortion rights won by 200,000 votes, 10 times more than the margin of Biden's victory in 2020. And just a week or two after that, that Texas judge ruled that FDA approval of the abortion drug mefepristone was wrong, and that the drug should be banned nationwide. The Supreme Court might reject that ruling. They said they will decide by midnight Wednesday. We are talking before midnight Wednesday. They say they will announce whether they are going to order that access to mefepristone be temporarily restricted or fully prohibited while the case is appealed for a full hearing later this year, but now now it's on the table. What will Republican candidates say about a nationwide ban on mefepristone? I, I looked this up. As of right now, there's only one Republican senator, Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi, who has publicly expressed support for a nationwide ban. And there's only one Republican presidential candidate, Mike Pence. Trump is, has been silent. Ron DeSantis has been silent. But how long will the Republicans be able to avoid taking a stand on a nationwide ban of mefepristone? I think in many senses, John, that depends on the courts, because by and large, I think Republicans would prefer that, that the courts sort these issues out 
and that they don't have to actually be talking about them and, and, and focusing on them. At the core of, of this discussion is the reality that America is a pro-choice country. And the polling data in red states and in blue states suggests that uh, people are in favor of reproductive rights. They may have some distinctions within it. We shouldn't be unrealistic. Some people really want essentially no restrictions. Some people can accept some restrictions. But by and large, people want uh, women to have uh, access to safe and legal methods for ending a pregnancy that they don't want. But of course, if the courts choose, as this Texas judge, to restrict access to different methods of abortion, no matter what they are, that's going to just highlight the issue more and more, and it is going to make it more of a challenge. So ultimately, Republicans aren't going to be able to avoid these issues. They're going to have to deal with them. And uh, we are going to see an interesting dynamic because, remember, Republican nominating processes, this process of choosing a candidate for president in 2024, will occur within the bubble. It won't be you know, reaching out to the great mass of Americans. It will be reaching out to a very uh, energized and passionate base, which tends to be very anti-choice. So what you're going to see is some Republicans looking to the November election and trying to you know, present at least a, a somewhat more mainstream stance. And then there will be someone, maybe a couple of candidates who go to the extreme, right? And because of the heavy mobilization on the part of anti-choice groups, they're going to have viability there. So what we're going to end up seeing, John, is uh, the issue of abortion, which Republicans have been able to be relatively united on in their basic opposition, potentially become one of those uh, delineating issues, one that actually divides them. And uh, we could theoretically see Republican debates where you have Republicans attacking one another for being insufficiently anti-choice, right? And it is also evidence that our friend Mark Cooper is right about a lot of things, but he was really right about this one. I understand that Trump is going to be taking questions at an Iowa Republican pre-primary event this week or next week. And seems to me it's inevitable he's going to be asked about banning medical medication abortion and about Ron DeSantis's coming approval of a six-week ban on abortion that the state of Florida, Florida legislature has already voted for. So isn't Trump going to have to say something in the next week or two? Oh, I, I think you are making a lot of assumptions about Donald <laughs> yes, Trump. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, yeah, when Donald Trump doesn't want to say something about something, he usually doesn't, and he often gets away with it. Donald Trump has historically uh, kind of played the abortion issue in a very complex way. In talking to anti-choice groups, he's way over the top. He is the most passionate backer of uh, you know restrictions on abortion rights. By the same token, it's not usually a central theme of his politics. It's not something that he talks about a lot uh, when he isn't pressed on it. If he is pressed on it in Iowa, I suspect that he will go to whatever he thinks the crowd will want to hear. And that may be a, a very firm anti-abortion stance because obviously he does not want to lose that evangelical base that's been very important to him politically. But uh, as with everything with Donald Trump, I think you might well get a statement one day and something else the next day. Yeah. So the Wisconsin vote that was so striking and so important, 
showed that uh, if democratic grassroots groups mobilize women and young people, this is a very effective way to turn out Democrats around abortion rights. The women issue has been talked about a lot. The youth issue, not so much. What do we know about the youth vote uh, in, in Wisconsin right now? Well, the women issue and the youth issue often intersect. Yeah, uh, because uh, one of the one of the key groups that we're seeing turn out in in dramatically increased numbers in a lot of election uh, contests around the country is young women. You know, look, one of the one of the challenges as regards young voters in general is that they tend to be mobile. Right. They are going off to college. They're going off to work. They are in places where they're not perhaps so connected to the traditional political patterns. Right. And so as a result, uh, we have to historically had lower turnout among young voters. That's shifting. It began to shift uh, really in 2018, even before the Supreme Court's ruling, uh, and in 2020, where you saw higher than expected uh, youth turnout. Uh, And in 2022, I think it was profoundly affected by the Supreme Court's ruling. I don't think there's any question in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race that we've been talking about on April 4, there was a major, major impact there. And the campuses around Wisconsin saw incredibly high turnout, uh, much higher than usual for a spring off-year election. Uh, I suspect that the lessons of 2022 and 2023 are going to be learned in a huge way going into 2024. And, uh, and you will see an incredible mobilization aimed at young people focused on I think a, a, a set of issues, including reproductive rights, also college costs, things like that. Uh, and I think finally you may see the Democrats being able to break through in a major way here and, and boost turnout significantly. I will tell you one quick uh, thing that along the way, there'll be a test this fall in Kentucky. And there's a Kentucky gubernatorial election uh, where the current governor, Governor Bashir, is seeking re-election. Um, it's a tough state. You know, Kentucky is a, a Trump state. Uh, Mitch McConnell, I believe, comes from Kentucky. Oh, I've heard that. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, a Democratic governor running for reelection in such a state is going to have, you know, it's going to be a, a challenging reelect. But it'll be interesting to see how this issue plays in that race. Of course, Republicans have noticed this effect also. And they're, um, they have a problem, which is that that the United States lowered the age of voting from 21 to 18 by constitutional amendment, which is basically impossible to change. That was back in 1971 when we all, those of us who were around in 1971, all thought that this would be an anti-war vote that would help prevent Nixon from being elected, which you may recall didn't happen. Not quite. Uh, not it, got quite. McGovern, it got McGovern nominated, but necessarily get Nixon beat. So Republicans can't raise the voting age, but what they have been trying to do to uh, go after young voters is to try to prevent them from voting with with uh, voter ID laws uh, that in some states prohibit the use of student IDs as acceptable documentation. In Wisconsin now, for example, what, what, is the, what are the ID requirements for students? It's a very good question, uh, and it's it's true in many many states that this is a challenging circumstance. I think we can we can pretty well establish that the dumbest thing the Republicans could try and do would be to raise the voting age. Um, yeah. That would that would um, that would a go nowhere, but b also uh, probably you know intensify the passion 
among young people to go and vote. Uh, but the the barriers are real. In Wisconsin, for instance, uh, when Scott Walker was governor, uh, they passed a number of barriers, voter ID, basically. And one of the things that they did was that they created a circumstance where your your standard college ID couldn't be used to vote. And so you made young people kind of have to, who've come to college, have to jump through several hoops to, to be able to cast a ballot. And we've seen similar things to that across the country. Bottom line is, Republicans are apparently very, very concerned about young people voting. They've been concerned for a while. Now, I think as a result of this Wisconsin result, Scott Walker talking about it and other things, they're even more hyped up about it. And you'll see a number of, of moves making it harder to vote. And it can involve everything from barriers on voter ID all the way over to placement of polling places, just yeah. making it easy to vote in a certain place. Uh, and then uh, we had one thing in Wisconsin that, that you know, is hopefully a trick that doesn't get exported. And that is they moved the primary elections in Wisconsin for partisan elections from September when students are at school, at, at university, to August when they're not. Um, And I think that had a very significant impact, especially as regards to mobilization of young voters. So when you add it all up, it's a pretty, it's a pretty thorough package of, of tools that they have that they can use. And uh, I think that Democrats, progressives, young voter activists have to be always on the watch because it's now quite clear, again, if you listen to the remarks of Scott Walker after the Wisconsin election, Scott Walker leads a national foundation uh, the Young America Foundation, I believe it is, that organizes on campuses. They're going to be looking for all sorts of avenues to make it harder, at least for young people who might be progressive and might be inclined to vote for Democrats to cast their ballots. Of course, the other thing Republicans always try to do and are trying to do right now is to distract voters from the issues that everybody knows they care about with other issues. Ron DeSantis's favorite not right now is going against what he calls wokeness, which is bad. And uh, in their uh, view, in their view, especially focusing on trans issues, you know, uh, bans on trans athletes, bans on trans bathrooms. Is this really going to distract voters from bread and butter issues and abortion rights and minimum wage and the other things Democrats are pretty good at right now? I don't think so. I mean, it was an issue that they tried to some extent in Wisconsin, and it, it, it didn't go anywhere. The interesting thing about the Republican initiatives on trans issues is that it's so cruel. And uh, and I think a lot of people realize that. E- even folks who wouldn't traditionally have thought of themselves as being particularly engaged with L- LGBTQ issues, they look at this and they say, wow, this, this just seems mean-spirited. And I do think it probably has a, an impact on the other side, that it it mobilizes people and also causes a lot of people to see the Republicans as threatening when they get in a position of power. And one final thing on it is that so much of it is just education, just talking about things, right, and discussing it. And this intersects with so many of the Republican efforts to uh, constrain what young people can learn about and discuss at, at the you know junior high, high school level. And I do think there's a pushback on this. And I, I, the where I'll point to, John, is on elections for school boards that have occurred this spring. Mm-hmm. And there have been a lot of them. This is the usually spring elections see a lot of school board elections around the country. And in Wisconsin, Illinois, and other states, what we've seen is that candidates who are backed by teachers and who um, have generally taken more progressive stance have done very, very well. 
and the, the kind of right-wing push into the school boards, while still very active and very well-funded, uh, doesn't seem to be getting quite the traction that they imagined that it would. And so it's going to be very interesting to see whether they continue to push on these issues or whether they tend to back off and aim in other directions. Obviously, Ron DeSantis has staked his potential presidential run on, on this sort of fight. Yeah. And so uh, if he is the nominee, I think you're going to hear a lot about it. On the other hand, uh, I think that there are other Republicans who may already be recognizing that that this is a uh, another issue that identifies Republicans as cruel and also that identifies them as extreme. Yeah. And my sense is that they they may increasingly recognize that that's something they, they should avoid. To conclude here by getting back to uh, the uh, abortion rights is an issue. Big picture is that judge in Amarillo who ordered a nationwide ban on mefepristone was, of course, nominated because we had a Republican president and confirmed because we had a Republican Senate. In 2024, 23 of the 33 Senate seats that are up for election or re-election are held by Democrats. The 10 Republican seats are solidly in red states. That means we have a tremendous fight on our hands in 2024. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Democrats are in a disadvantaged position. Uh, we know where the, the challenging races are going to be. We have Democrats right now who hold seats in places like Montana. And so John Tester out there is going to have a, a heck of a fight on his hands, no matter uh, how good a politician he is. You've also got Ohio, which has trended very much toward uh, the Republicans in recent years. Trump won it by eight points. Uh, Sherrod Brown, who's proven to be very resilient. He's up in a what will be a tough race. Tammy Baldwin running in Wisconsin seems to have an advantage, but Wisconsin still is a battleground state. So you start to tick these off. And I haven't even gotten to West Virginia, which oh. mention is up, oh. or uh, Arizona, where you could even have a three-way race with Kirsten Sinema, former Democrat, now independent, running with a Democrat and perhaps a right-wing Republican. So there's going to be a lot of tough races around the country. Nevada gets in that mix as well. The Democrats are going to need more than just a popular political figure like a Sherrod Brown or a Tammy Baldwin. They're going to need to have some sort of national message, a national theme that that kind of raises the stakes in these races up. Uh, and, and to do that, I think we're going to end up talking about or see them end up talking about some of the issues we've been discussing, particularly reproductive rights. I think that is one of those national issues, even though different states have different approaches. Uh, I also think that uh, it's going to be very vital for them to have national messages as regards healthcare, education, a host of other issues. This falls to Biden. He's got to set the tone for the party. It won't be him alone, but it becomes very, very vital that he do this. In some states, they will distance themselves some from Biden because of political dynamics. That always happens. But there's got to be that baseline message that uh, mobilizes people who are especially in this new era of our politics, who are getting their information at a national level. Used to be you had strong local newspapers, strong local radio stations. People got a lot of their information there. Now, increasingly, people get their information out of Washington, out of New York, whether we like it or not. They're getting it from cable TV. They're getting it from streamed media. They're getting it on social media. And in that circumstance, uh, the clearer the Democratic message is, the more likely they are to be able to hold the Senate. But it is going to be a very, very hard fight. In fact, there's a very real chance that Biden's reelect could be, if he runs against Trump, relatively easier. 
that Democrats could have be in a pretty good position to take back the House of Representatives, but it will be the Senate that is sort of the perilous fight. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. It is always an honor to be with you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>